Wonderful. I have felt genuinely welcomed uh, by all of you. There is one thing that's made me feel like an outsider, though. Uh, I'll just tell you. Uh, it's not my skin color. That's not it. Uh, it's not driving around. Uh, there seem to be no discernible traffic laws here. I don't... It, <laughs> there are no signs. People are just going wherever they want. And it all works. And everybody's honking. They're not mad. They're just honking. And it's, it's just a wonderful illustration of God's providence directing everything so that no one dies today. It's not that. It's not that. That hasn't made me feel, that's confusing, but it doesn't make me feel like an outsider. What makes me feel like an outsider uh, was when Femi was telling his jokes, I did, not, I did not laugh, but you were all laughing. I was like, how do I get this intel of what is fun? I, I didn't know. And so if I don't get his jokes, my assumption is that you're not going to get my jokes either, and I may just cut them out for the sake of time, if that's okay. Uh, in this section, as Femi said, we're going to talk about preaching. And I'll just mention that he actually got two books on this topic. Um, are you hedging your bets? It's like if this fails, at least we've got two books to help the people. Okay. Uh, so, so I'm not going to go into as much depth as those books will, but I want to give us a, a, an overview of Christ-centered preaching, um, compel you toward that. I know as a preacher that um, this is kind of a personal topic, right? We're sensitive about our preaching, or at least I am. Just a few weeks ago, someone in our church, a man who I know and trust, uh, gave some critique, not just on a sermon, but like on the recent sermons that I had been giving. And I'll tell you, it was really discouraging. He was, he was right, and I was still really discouraged. It was so hard just to get to work the next day on the next sermon. I, just, I called the, my guy that I work with and said, I don't want to do this. He said, well, you have to. You're on the schedule. It's, it, it can be very personal. And I don't know about you, but after I, I preach, I tend to ask questions like, how did I do on that? Was I funny enough, insightful enough, passionate enough? Uh, do people accept and approve of me as a preacher? I'm starting to wonder some of those questions right now, even about this group here. <laughs> those kinds of questions are inevitable. You're always going to ask them. Yeah. The danger is when we linger in those questions. Yeah. Paul often talks about how tiring and how personal his ministry is, but he always, in those conversations, turns his thoughts to Jesus for his sense of identity and power. And we must do the same thing as preachers. We must turn our thoughts to Jesus for our own sense of identity and power. But listen, this is what I want to talk about. We must do that for our people in our sermons. Our sermons must help them turn their thoughts to Jesus for their sense of identity and power. That's Christ-centered preaching. What makes a sermon effective, it's not the only thing, but the key thing, the principal thing, is that our sermons are Christ-centered. So this isn't about style or skill. You have style and skill, I'm sure. Femi had plenty of style. I mean, the man was coming down up in here, looked at me this close. I'm like, hey, hey, hey. We don't do that where I'm from. Just back up, you know? We like personal space. Plenty of style in the room. I know that. But this isn't about style or skill. <laughs> got him. I got him. <laughs> this is about Jesus being at the center, not us. We've heard that a lot today. It's a good message. And so that raises uh, three questions that we're going to ask and answer. What is Christ-centered preaching? Why must we do it? And how do we do it? 
Now, I've given you a handout that has those, he those questions on there. I've given you some of the bullet points of my notes. I'm going to cover a lot of verses. This isn't really a sermon. This is a talk about a sermon. And so uh, I just wanted you to have those in reference so that you're not wasting all your time writing them down. Otherwise, you'll miss what's happening. Uh, but those are there for you. So let's define what is Christ-centered preaching. Here's a simple definition. You can write this in. Christ-centered preaching means expositing the text, which, as Femi said, explaining it, making it plain that my sermon kind of has the same shape and meaning as the text does. So expositing the text and then bringing the sermon forward to Jesus so that people can look to him and find life. You know, it's possible to read the Bible, even to preach the Bible, and miss the point of the Bible. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Christ-centered preaching is expositing the scriptures, not because life is found in them, but because they bring us forward to Jesus so that we might look to him and find life. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Don't you want life for your people? They won't get it by looking at you. They'll get it by looking to Jesus. Let's consider uh, this idea of Christ-centered preaching in contrast to two other models that are popular where I live, and I'm sure they're popular here as well. First one is virtue-centered preaching. Virtue-centered preaching highlights a character quality and then says, be like that. So uh, you can do this in a number of places, but just to give you an example, at the end of Ephesians 4, Paul gives us a wonderful list of things that we should be like. He talks about honesty, controlled anger, hard work, generosity, wholesome talk, kindness, a forgiving heart. Man, don't you want to be like that? Christ-centered preaching says, no, Jesus is like that. And only through faith in Him and by the power of His Spirit can you be conformed to His likeness. See, that list of virtues and every list of virtues in the Scripture primarily points us to Jesus and then to our own lives. So after this, in Ephesians 5, verse 1, look what he says. Therefore, because you should be like this, be imitators of God as beloved children. How can, wait, don't miss it. How can we be imitators of God? Because we're his children. How are we his children? Because Jesus has come. And all who believe in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Mm -hmm. right, next verse, in case you missed it. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, we look to Jesus first. Now, this is really popular in narratives, especially like in the Old Testament. We'll take like an exemplary figure, Abraham, Nehemiah, David, whoever you want, and we'll say, man, look at this guy. Look at this gal. Be like them. Christ-centered preaching says, these characters point to Jesus. Jesus is the true Abraham who never wavered in his faith not once. Jesus is the true Nehemiah who builds his church and nothing will come against it. Jesus is the true David who fights our enemies and vanquishes them and reigns victoriously as our king. Yes. Jesus is like that. 
And so look to him. He lived the life that we could never have lived on our own. And he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sins so that God could make us his people, just like Abraham and Nehemiah and David. So we should, by all means, commend virtuous character. Don't throw that away. We should warn against destructive devices, but we must first look to Jesus as our example and as our substitute. This verse was quoted earlier, but Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, that's our example, to be sin, that's our substitute, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how we get virtue. The other model I'll contrast with is principle-centered preaching. Principle-centered preaching highlights the highest principle in the text and then explains it, applies it to daily life. The, the basic MO of principle-centered preaching is do this. Do this. So go back to Ephesians 4 if you want. If you look at that text um, and you kind of study it, you can begin to see there's this kind of uh, relationship between giving and taking that gets highlighted. And so you might, through study, come to a really insightful principle that Christians should be givers, not takers. Sounds biblical. That's a good principle, isn't it? I think so. I made it up, so I'm going to say, yeah, it's a good principle. <laughs> so you might take that principle as the highest principle in the text and, and then explain it and apply it and build on that so that people have something to take home with them. It's not bad. Accept that. Principal Center Preaching says, do this, and the truth is you can't do this on your own. Jesus did it perfectly. We can look to him. And not only did he do it, he did it for you. Through faith in him, you can be forgiven of your sin, the fact that you can't do it and didn't do it. And you can have the power of the Spirit who enables you to actually do it. Do you see how we... How we miss the point if we leave Jesus out of the equation? Yes. Another way to put it would be to say that principled-centered sermons preach the imperatives, the commands, what we're to do. But Christ-centered preaching does preach the commands, but it always grounds the imperatives in the indicatives. Indicatives is just what's been done to us, what's true of us because of what God has done. And so we preach the imperatives, but we always ground it in the indicatives. How can you put on this new self? Because you've put off the new self, and then the old self, and the new self has been created in the righteousness of God. How can you be forgiving? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. We root it in the indicatives. Let me, let me just give you a little example. We'll do a little exercise together. Uh, I think I have 2 Peter chapter 1 on the screen. You, might, you want to open it up if you can. But look at this great list of virtues and principles. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Pretty great list, right? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have a list of virtues followed by what looks like a principle that if, if these are yours and increasing, you'll be fruitful and effective. Does everyone here want to be fruitful and effective? Does everyone in your church want to be fruitful and effective in their faith? Well, just do that. 
Be like that. Amen. You ready for your talk? Ready? That's how people feel sometimes when we only preach virtues and principles. What do you think keeps you, not your people, but you, from being like that and doing that? What, do you th what are the barriers, do you think? Just not enough time? Not enough discipline? Need better community? Maybe a better, better music at your church? I don't know. What, what is it that keeps you from, I mean, this is in the Bible. Do it. Right? I've asked that question, I think, to hundreds of people, literally. And I've heard those answers and so many more. The answer that I've never heard, actually, is the one that Peter gives. Look at the next verse, verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities, whoever's not doing this, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What does Peter say the problem is in our lack of virtue and principled living? We've forgotten the gospel, that we've been cleansed from our former sins. What is the power source of living this way? Remembering, being washed in, meditating upon, rehearsing and preaching Christ and his forgiveness of my sin to myself every day. I stand before you as a man who's been a Christian for 20 years. I don't know how old I am. Maybe it's been longer than that, 25. And I need the gospel. I need to remember that I've been cleansed from my sins right now, honestly, as much as I ever have. I haven't moved on from it. And as soon as I think I've moved on from it, I have no hope of living this life that Peter describes. I need it. All right, quickly, what are the benefits of preaching Christ over principles and virtues? Let me give you three quick ones briefly. What is the aim of Christ-centered preaching? First, we aim to help people understand the whole Bible, the theme of the whole Bible. So the Bible from Old Testament to New is one unified story that leads to Jesus. You're familiar with Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus? After Jesus' death, two men are making the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem back to Emmaus, and they're talking about all the things that have happened, and Jesus comes up alongside of them. They don't know it's him, and he just says, hey, fellas, what are you talking about? And they look at him like, dude, are you from Mars? Uh, and maybe that's the alien speaker that Femi mentioned last night. Maybe we have a few more here. See, I knew you wouldn't get my jokes. I knew you wouldn't get them. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. Jesus, they look at him like, have you not heard of all that has happened here? Everybody's heard. And Jesus says, no, what would have happened? And they went on to tell him about the one that they hoped would re be, redeem Israel, but, but that he's been crucified. And then Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus understood every part of the Bible as the unfolding of God's plan that leads to himself. And when we preach Christ in every sermon, our people begin to see Jesus throughout the storyline of the scripture. Because we bring him forward. Now, listen, when you are reading a passage the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus may not be explicit in the author's intent. And so I'm not saying put something there that's not there. Teach the text. Exposit it.
but then bring Christ forward. In other words, we can look at any text in the context of the whole Bible and follow the storyline. It all leads to Jesus. Second benefit is that we point people to Jesus for justification to be saved, but also for sanctification to mature in faith. And I don't know what's happening here, but in the States, Jesus has been preached to get into heaven, and then we've been left on our own to become mature disciples. But we need him for both. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom why, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Right? Not just that we might save everyone, but that we might present them mature. How do we, how do we accomplish the maturity? We proclaim Christ. A few verses later, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. Let me ask you a question. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By grace, through faith. Okay. How do you walk in Christ Jesus the Lord? By grace, through faith. Your people won't know that if you don't proclaim Christ to them. They'll leave thinking that they walk in the Lord by principles and virtues. Principles and virtues without Jesus typically leave us feeling one of two ways. We feel driven to, to do more and be better. Right? Those are the, the type A personalities. The sensitive ones, the ones who feel, actually feeling despair. Because they know they, they haven't done better. They failed. They can't do it. And they leave under a pile of shame and condemnation. That's not the gospel. When we preach the principles and virtues of the text and then point people to Jesus as the model and power for such living, that is how people will become rooted and built up in him. Third benefit, and this is more personal. Christ-centered preaching makes truth of the scriptures real to our hearts. Meaning, Christianity is truth, but it's truth that lives. And it becomes real to us in a very powerful way, personally. So in Luke 24, after Jesus had taught them from the scriptures all the things concerning himself and left their house, listen what they say. In Luke 24, 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And then later, it says, that same hour, right? They had just made a long journey. They're tired, but their hearts had burned. And that same hour, they went back to Jerusalem proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. So listen, these two men on the road they knew the scriptures. They knew all of the passages that Jesus was talking about. They knew it. But when he showed them how they point to himself, that is when their hearts burned within them. When the resurrection became real to their hearts, that is when they felt energized to go and tell the people about the risen Christ. Jesus is alive and present here. Right, with us, right now. He is alive and present in your churches when you gather. Now, your people know that intellectually, don't they? 
They know that. But when we bring him to bear in our preaching, that truth becomes real to their hearts. It revives and strengthens them to walk in Christ and to make him known wherever they go. Christ-centered preaching means expositing the text, bringing the sermon forward to Jesus so that people will look to him to find life. That's what it is. Now, why must we do it? The main reason that we must preach Christ-centered sermons is because the Bible does. The whole Bible points to Jesus, as we've discussed, but also think about every New Testament letter. You know these function to like sermons, right? Paul uh, would hand it to a messenger, say, in, for Romans. He'd give, he gave, Paul gave Romans to someone. <laughs> God entrusted his word with just people, and they would take it and they would read it to the church like a sermon. So the thing about all the New Testament letters is that there's plenty of virtues and principles, but they are profoundly Christ-centered. The Bible models this for us. In Paul's own ministry, uh, you look in Corinthians. Now listen, that's a messed up place. Lots of problems to deal with in Corinth. One of the problems was is people were kind of like picking favorite pastors, which never happens in our churches. <laughs> I split time with another preacher, so I preach half the time. He preaches the other half of the time. We call it the sanity plan. Because uh, I would go insane if I had to preach 50 times a year. And uh, inevitably, people just prefer one over the other. You can't help it. Mostly him, but it's okay. <laughs> because my identity and my power is in Christ. See I, have to, see, I need it right now. I need it right now. So this divisions are happening in, in Corinth. It was about style and skill. That's what it was about. But Paul points them to Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 13 and 17. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. It's not about style and skill, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The more we try to make our power known, the more the cross is emptied of its power functionally in our people's lives. 1 Corinthians 1.22, just after this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. People in our churches are like this. Show me something. Make me feel smart. But we preach Christ crucified. Not because he's not powerful and wise. No, Paul says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Right? So there's all kinds of issues and topics to deal with and to teach on in Corinth. And the same is true in our churches. But above all else, we much, must preach Christ. We must explain and exalt and apply the work of Christ to our lives. Finally, uh, let's think about the book of Acts for a moment. Have you ever thought about Acts as a preaching book? The book of Acts does not just exist to tell us what happened in the early church. The book of Acts also, I think, exists to show us how the early church preached. There's 10 or 15, maybe more sermons in Acts, depending on what you count as a sermon. Um, and they're all Christ-centered. I'm going to give you, you don't have to follow along here. You won't be able to. I'm going to go fast. But I just want to give you a sense of it. Acts 2, Pentecost. Peter explains the Pentecost event by showing how the Old Testament points to Jesus. 
as the reason and the source for this outpouring of the Spirit. Acts 3, Peter explains a healing that's happened by connecting Jesus to the God of the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus as the power who, gives, uh, who heals people and the necessity to have faith in Him, to access this power. Acts 4, Peter and John are being questioned about that healing. And again, Peter points to Jesus as the source and power of the healing, and he calls the leaders, the religious leaders, to believe in Jesus to be saved. Acts 7, Stephen faces death by stoning and gives what I think is the best sermon in Acts. He explains himself at his death this way. He goes from Abraham to Moses to the prophets, and he simply shows how it all leads to Jesus. And they kill him just like they did Jesus. In Acts 8, a summary of Philip's preaching just says he proclaimed to them the Christ. Acts 10, Peter proclaims Christ to the Gentiles and the Spirit falls upon them. Acts 13, in the synagogue, Paul shows how the story of Israel from Moses to David all leads to Jesus. Acts 15, the apostles are trying to sort out what to do with the Judaizers and how to manage the expansion of the church among the Gentiles. And the text says there was much debate. Go figure. You ever been in an elder meeting? Much debate. But Peter brings clarity by standing up and explaining the grace of Jesus for all. The apostles needed the gospel to make sense of what was happening. Acts 17, Paul preaches to pagans, and he moves from their abstract sense of a higher power out there to the very concrete realities of the person and the work of Jesus. And by the way, they did all this in very concise fashion. It wasn't about length. It wasn't about showing off. It was just about clarity. We preach Christ-centered sermons because the Bible does it, but also because it bears much fruit. So this isn't just an issue of like, well, I guess I've got to obey. No, you want to do this. Yes. Yes. Just quickly, let me tell you what happens in these sermons that we just looked at in Acts. In Acts 2, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? Wouldn't you kill for that on a Sunday? You preach and people stand up and say, what, what shall I do? And, by the way, there were added that day 3,000 people to their church. Acts 4, when, they saw the, when the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and they knew they were just uneducated men, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Acts 8, Stephen's death leads to persecution and scattering, which doesn't sound like a benefit, but you know what happened because of that persecution and scattering? The gospel is taken to the nations. You ever feel that way about people leaving your church? Man, maybe God's taking the gospel to other places. Yeah. Acts 13, this is great, the people begged Paul to tell them more. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Acts 15, the assembly fell silent. The people who were debating, this is a minor miracle, they just shut up. And there was unity, it says, among the apostles and the elders and the whole church. In a, in a day of massive division in the church, unity, we need it more than ever. And how do we get it? We preach Christ whom we're unified in. Seven, Acts 17, some mocked, but some said, we want to hear more about this. Christ-centered preaching points people to Jesus, and when they look to Him, they find life, life abundantly. 
They learn to abide in him, and in him they bear much fruit. So we must preach Christ-centered sermons because the Bible does, and we want to preach Christ-centered sermons because they bear fruit in our ministries and in our people's lives. But lastly, how? How do we do it? One of the most helpful things I think I can tell you is um, we preach the text. We clarify what's going on in the passage that we're working with. But then we also uncover the good news about Jesus that's embedded in every text, I believe, by looking at the whole context of the scriptures. And probably the most helpful way I can, can tell you to do this is to learn some basic templates that would help you see the person and work of Jesus in every text. I call them gospel grids. Um, I've picked up a few of these over the years, and so now that I have them in my mind and on my shelf, I, I can look at a text, I can do the hard work of understanding what the text says, and then I can lay these grids over it to help me see how to bring the sermon forward to Jesus. So I've given you two, maybe three, three grids on that handout. And the reason I gave them to you is because I'm not going to be able to go in them in depth. But here, here they are really quickly. The first one is called the cross chart. This is in uh, the Gospel Center Life that Femi mentioned. The cross chart gives us... Uh, did I hand, give you... Yeah, I'll give you the right hand up. The cross chart gives us just some, uh, some basic ideas to look at a text. So... The, the principle is that as my awareness of God's holiness grows and my awareness of my own sin grows, the cross of Christ gets bigger in my life. It doesn't get bigger. It is big. It just gets bigger in my life. My, my affections for Jesus grow. And so I can look at any text and just ask some simple questions. What does this text teach me about God, his holiness, his character, his commands? What does this text reveal about me, my sin, the stuff that's going underneath my sinful behaviors, my brokenness. And then third, how does this text point me to Jesus? What is it about this that reveals my need for him, his life and death and resurrection? And then finally, how do these realities, how does this gospel increase my affections for Jesus? Remember, sermon is not just about truth. It's about truth that lives We are always proclaiming not an idea or a system, but a person who we are invited to follow and love with our whole heart. And so we want to increase our affections for him. The next grid I call Tim Keller's grid because I stole it from Tim Keller. (laughs) I heard him say this a number of years ago. He says, every text has a command, something we must do, or maybe a virtue, something we must be. And it always creates a crisis for us. Because we know deep down we can't do it. We can't be like that. Not on our own. And so it points us to Jesus because Jesus did it and he did it for us. He perfectly obeyed and he died in our place. And through faith in him, he re- we receive his spirit. And by his spirit, we now can obey that command. Right. Uh, this last one. Um, is more about the shape of a sermon, what a sermon does. And I'll just give it to you briefly. But a sermon, the Word of God, always confronts us. So in Acts 2, they're confused about the situation that's going on because men are speaking in various languages. And you know what they said? These guys are drunk. Like they misunderstand the situation and they mock in their fear and their pride. And Peter stands up and the first thing he does is confront them. He says, no, 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 (laughs) you're wrong. They're not drunk as you suppose. And confrontation is not the only, the main thing even. It's just a step. Then the word clarifies the truth. 
Peter immediately, after confronting them, takes them to Joel and to Psalm 16. He takes them to the Word of God to clarify what's happening. He says, look, what's happening here is because of Jesus, so that people will call upon Him. This outpouring of the Spirit was foretold by Joel and David. So he explains, he clarifies with the Word of God. Finally, uh, thirdly, the uh, Word of God convicts us of our sin. You know, one point in that sermon, Peter, I think the last thing he says is, uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. Amen. I mean, that's a hard landing on a sermon, right? Oh, by the way, you did this. Amen. He convicts us. And you know what they say? I've already said that it cut them to the heart. It means they felt it. it they weren't just like, hmm, good point, Peter. You know? They felt it. It, they were in emotional distress over it. That's what the word means. What should we do? And look what Peter tells them to do because a sermon, the gospel, converts us. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and, and baptism. These are conversion words because the gospel converts us from our ignorance and fear and self-reliance and points us to the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And finally, a sermon comforts us with the good news about Jesus and how it applies to our lives. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What, are, what a comforting word. And so you get the Holy Spirit. So here are these people in this situation, like, I don't know what's going on here, but I think I want this now that you've explained it. I don't know how to get it. How do I get in on this Holy Spirit thing? Peter brings in this comforting word. You can, it's for all. Just repent and be baptized. Your sins will be forgiven. You receive the Holy Spirit and you get in on this life that is in Christ. Listen, wherever you go from here, to your homes, to your, to your neighborhoods, to your churches, whenever you open this word, would you proclaim Christ? Would you explain the word as best you know? Make it plain and then bring it forward to Jesus and point people to Him. If you do that, not because of your style or skill, but because of the power of the gospel, I believe Lagos will be changed. I mean changed. Turned upside down, or rather right side up. Yeah. Let's pray to that end.